Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. I had a lady that asked me to baptize her. Uh, Years ago, she came to me and said, I want to get baptized. And I said, great. And we talked about what it was. We talked about what you do, what you think, and what we teach, all that kind of stuff. And she said, however, before I do, I want to read the entire Bible cover to cover. It's not a bad thing, but I asked her why, you know, why, why do that? I mean, we kind of covered the relevant parts. Why do you want to read the whole thing cover to cover? And she said, I want to know what I'm getting into. (laughs) I know, I want to know what I'm committing to. And I thought that was such a good answer. Very few people do that. And I certainly wouldn't make it a requirement of getting baptized. But I really appreciated the sentiment just to say, you know, I want to read the fine print. We wouldn't buy a used car without checking it out, right? We wouldn't uh, uh, buy a house without having it inspected. But we tend to think that faith or belief is sort of a, a leap before you look thing. And I don't think that's true at, at all. In fact, I have a lot of fellow ministers, a lot of fellow preachers that they counsel people, just believe. You're struggling with doubt, just believe. Just, just dig deep and believe. And I don't know that that's really good advice. I don't think that's what the scriptures teach us. John chapter 14, verse 11, uh, Jesus said, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And you might read that and say, well, that just says just believe, basically. I mean, if you just reword it a little bit, but look at what he said next, at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't mind some healthy skepticism. If you're wrestling with ideas or thoughts, that's not something that you see pushed against in Scripture. He doesn't mind healthy skepticism. And that's essentially what we've been trying to explore in this series, talking about the elements of our faith, the essence of our belief. So two weeks ago, we talked about, is it reasonable to believe in God? I think yes, right? And then last week we talked about, is it reasonable to believe that the Bible is reliable, that what we have is what they wrote? And I think we gave fairly solid evidence for that. It's reasonable to believe in that. But if I were talking with a skeptic, a healthy skeptic, I wouldn't actually start with God. I wouldn't even actually start with the Bible, although that's going to seem like a little bit of a contradiction when I tell you how I would start. If I'm talking to somebody who's skeptical and exploring and wrestling and trying to figure it all out, the place that I would start is Jesus. Because I think Jesus is the most compelling entry point. When Jesus said, I am the door, it wasn't like he, this is what he was talking about. But I think this really makes sense that our, our path into faith, our path into a relationship with God, even our pathway into exploring the scriptures is Jesus. And that's where I would start with a lot of people who are skeptical. There's, there's a lot of compelling evidence for everything else, but I would start with Jesus. Jesus said this in John 14, 9. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, this is an entry point to God. And, and he says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. In other words, that Jesus is the culmination of what scriptures have been teaching. So it's an entry point to the scriptures as well. So this is, this is really where I'd start. It sounds backwards, but I would start with Jesus because Jesus helps us make sense of God and Jesus helps us make sense of the Bible. And and you're sitting there, you might be thinking, wait, don't we learn about Jesus from the Bible? You're kind of getting the cart before the horse, but I'll explain what I mean uh, here in a second. Last week, we made the case that what we have, when you hold your Bible, that what we have is what the authors wrote. We tried to make that case, but who cares? 
Who cares if what we have is what the authors wrote? What does it matter? It doesn't matter if what they wrote was wrong. What if they were just making it up? People lie all the time about everything, about stuff that you wouldn't think you would lie about. They exaggerate their resumes, not us, of course, but other people. They lie about objectively verifiable facts. Did you know that? Many of you in this room are holding evidence of your lies in your pocket or in your purse. If you were to open it up and you were to pull out your Minnesota driver's license, on that driver's license is listed your weight. And as you were filling that form out, some of you were like, well, I am planning on losing 20 pounds, so why would I go ahead and put what I weigh now? Because the police officers won't recognize skinny version of me, so I better go ahead and put down my aspirational weight. We have evidence of it, because this is just how we are. People lie about stuff all the time. Um, so how do we know that the guys that wrote Jesus' biography didn't distort some things? Now, if you're sitting here thinking like, okay, Patrick, that's a little cynical. Well, alternatively, people are confused about everything all the time. We're always confused. You can look around and talk to just about anybody and they hold, deeply hold, some ideas that are wrong or bad or flawed. People are confused all the time. As many of you know that I grew up overseas. My parents lived in Taiwan, but every two years we had to travel out of the country to get our visas renewed. And one of the cheapest, closest places we could go was Hong Kong. And we'd travel to Hong Kong with, uh, with the family. And one of my two younger sisters got lost while we were there. They're both okay, right? Because they're both here. But they argue about which one it was. I mean, this is 30 years later and they can't agree. They both felt like they experienced that moment. But one of them, it didn't happen to one of them. One of them, that is not objectively true, and they're confused about it, and they, they have this, like, this little debate about it. My dad actually settled it a while ago because he just let them argue about this every Christmas and Thanksgiving for like 35 years, and I think it was this Christmas, he was like, well, it was actually this one there, right? And, you know, it's just, it's a whole thing. So how, this is the question, you're like, how are we supposed to substantiate 2,000-year-old claims about Jesus in the Gospels? And let's make it harder. We can't use the Bible. Like, I can't say, oh, just read your Bibles. The Bible says that Jesus existed and he said all these things because the Bible is the evidence in dispute. So let's do this. Let's, let's talk about this. This is important. You may be sitting here thinking, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Bible. I believe in God. I don't really need this. It's helpful for you to establish why you believe, even if it's not going to change what you believe, and you will be in conversations with people who do not share your beliefs, and it's helpful to have some sense or some explanation of what's going on and why you think what you think. So we have facts and we have clues. What facts do we have? What facts? What can we just say? This is absolutely uh, unequivocally true. It's worth saying there are people who don't believe Jesus existed. There are people who don't believe that. But not a single serious scholar, academic, and, and it doesn't matter if they're atheist or Christian or agnostic, not a single one 
believes that Jesus did not exist. It's not a controversial issue. It's not like there's people on both sides of the debate. There's crazy people and there's people who think that Jesus existed. It doesn't matter where you are on the, the, the spectrum of belief. Every serious person believes that Jesus existed. You may have an uncle or a cousin that you see every Thanksgiving and they're like, I don't think, but they're on their own. Well, how, how do we substantiate that? How do we substantiate that? Let me give you one example. Uh, Richard Dawkins, kind of a famous atheist, wrote a book called The God Delusion. I saw an interview of his this week, and he was asked, does he believe, does Richard Dawkins, the guy who wrote The the God Delusion, does he believe that Jesus was a real historical figure? And his response was a ringing endorsement. He said, well, all the scholars I know say he did, so. Now, if the guy that wrote the book, The God Delusion, that doesn't want you to believe God is real. If anybody had a horse in this race, it would be him. And even he has to begrudgingly agree, yeah, every smart person I know says that Jesus existed. It's very, very begrudging. It would be a little bit like if uh, Steve wore a Vikings jersey or something like that. That would be, that would be, whoa, we have a picture? Wow, when did you take the Steve? That's very impressive. I didn't know you were having a change of heart. It's really, it's really cool. I don't, that doesn't look like Photoshop to me at all. I don't see. It's genuine, genuine artifact right there. So in other words, we can argue Jesus wasn't real, but if you do so, you are, you are kind of in the flat earth, Bigfoot, uh, fake moon landing territory. You can be there if you want, But that's where you are. This is from our friend that we talked about last week, Bart Ehrman. Remember, he's an agnostic who doesn't believe that the Bible is reliable. And we talked about how he wasn't right. But anyway, this is from his book. He certainly, this is Jesus, he certainly has existed as virtually every competent scholar of antiquity, Christian or non-Christian agrees, based on certain and clear evidence. An agnostic guy said that. Why? Well, because a lot of it, it comes from evidence outside the Bible. There's Tacitus, Josephus, Lucian, Pliny. There's all these people outside scripture that say, yeah, there was this historical figure that existed. So here are the body of accepted facts about Jesus. It doesn't matter your background. Jesus was real. He was a teacher. He uh, had conflicts with the authorities, both Hebrew and uh, Roman. He was crucified. That was recorded in some outside the Bible sources. His movement continued after his crucifixion, and his followers were persecuted and killed. These are things that people all across the spectrum agree on. There's no confusion about this. Now, there's some important details that aren't there, and then we're going to talk about those in just a second. What about the stuff that we don't agree on? How do we substantiate 2,000-year-old claims. What about the miraculous stuff he did? What about the things he taught? What about the resurrection that's kind of crucial? What if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just were wrong? What if they were lying? So here's where we get to do a little bit of uh, detective work, so to speak. Um, And maybe no single thing that I'm going to point you to is definitive proof, but we have to determine what do these clues point toward? What is the most reasonable outcome of the things that we're going to talk about? Last week, we did textual criticism. I brought everybody up on stage, and they had different copies, none of which agreed, and we tried to figure out what the original said. You remember that? Well, another thing that uh, scholars do is they do a thing called textual analysis, and this is to determine from within the text what things might be able to be substantiated. 
So let me give you an example. This is a tweet from, oh, it's from January 1st. The Vikings will sack the cheeseheads at Lambeau from an account. Preacher Steve C. Interesting. A big Kirk Cousins fan. I wonder who that is. Um, Anyway, now sadly, this tweet is not telling us a verifiable fact. But based on a sentence like this, what can we figure out is reasonably true. We can figure out that this person, whoever, whatever random person tweeted this, understands American football. They have some sense of it, right? We can figure out that this person thinks that the Minnesota Vikings will win. We can figure out that this person knows the nickname of the Green Bay Packers. They're that involved in football. We can figure out that this person understands that this is a home game for the Packers. And we can at least maybe uh, ascertain that this person has some shallow sense of actual like Scandinavian Viking history because they use the word sack, you know, like sack and pillage. So we, there, there's a lot there. In that one little text, there's a lot of stuff that we can start to like, okay, these are reasonable assumptions that we can make. And scholars do this same thing with scriptural texts. And there's a lot of things that we can figure out and we can decide are likely true. There's a lot of material to work with. So I want to draw your attention to a couple things. And I apologize in advance. I just, it just started going down this direction and I had to let myself. So (laughs) this is how we're going to state this. The writers of the gospel were bad liars. And I apologize because every point I make is going to correspond to a letter of the word bad. And I hate that kind of stuff. But I was working on it this week and I'm like, I just got to do it. I'll just, ah, okay, well. The writers of the gospel were bad liars. Maybe this will help you remember it. It's so cheesy. You'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember that. It was terrible. Number one, the writers of the gospel, they were making very bold claims. They were making very bold claims. A good liar, you take a note, some of you are like, oh, what? what? a good liar likes to keep things vague. You don't want to offer too many details. You don't want to, you don't want to pin yourself down too much. You want, you want to keep things hard to verify. Netflix has had several documentaries about con artists the last few years, and they do this incredible job. There was one about this Russian-born young woman that conned all every, basically everybody in New York City by claiming she was the heiress of a rich Uh, German, you know, multi-billionaire. And so she'd be like, my dad hasn't sent me my check this month. Do you mind getting the bill? And she, hundreds of thousands of dollars that people would give her or lend her or pay for things or fly her places because like, well, of course she'll pay me back because her dad's really, really rich. And every time people would start to like, well, wait a second, what's your dad's name again? Then she would be gone and she'd move on to the next person. You, You have a hard time verifying People who are good liars, they don't want to be pinned down. But look at what the authors of the gospel do. John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eritrea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas. There's a ton of detail in there. There are eight verifiable things that you can pin down that Luke is embedding into the text. He's not trying to pull a fast one. 
He's giving us lots of detail, and we can go back and we can say, well, who really was the tetrarch of all these places? And, and was Philip really the brother? And number eight there, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, there's only one high priest. So you're saying there's two high priests? Well, yeah, actually there was two high priests. There was a period in Hebrew history where there were two high priests. One was appointed by Rome, one was appointed by the Hebrew people, and it was this wild thing, and nobody really liked it. But he's, he's pointing out verifiable historical facts. So in other words, there just not trying to trick us. Now, is that definitive proof that what they said was absolutely true? No, but it's a clue. It, it gives us an indication. It gives us a direction. It gives us a way to go, a way to think about this. It's, it's just proof that they were not very good at lying. They were bad liars. Number two, the, the A in bad. What they, what they wrote was pretty awkward. What they wrote was pretty awkward. The fancy academic term for this is criterion of embarrassment. And the basic idea is if you're going to make stuff up, you wouldn't make this stuff up. Like, for example, very few people, maybe, I don't know, maybe teenage boys would do this, but most of us, when we're making up a weight on our driver's license, very few people are going to claim that they weigh more than they do, right? Nobody's going to add 20 or 30 pounds. They're always going to try to make themselves look better because we live in a society for whatever reason that lighter is better and that's just the way it is at the moment. People don't make up things, generally speaking, to make themselves look worse. If you're going to lie, you lie for your benefit. Now, heads up, what I'm about to talk about is just a tiny bit offensive in our current culture. And I'm not advocating any of this, but some of you are going to be like, oh, that makes me so mad that these things were true thousands of years ago. But they were true thousands of years ago. Hebrew scholars would get together and would debate, and then they would write out sort of a religious constitution, so to speak. And one of the things that they wrote down, this was in the Mishnah, this was not in Scripture, but it was a thing that they, they wrote into their application of Scripture, is that women could not serve in a court of law to give testimony. That women were not reliable. And I've got three quotes from various places in the Mishnah. And I realize that's super offensive, right? That's awful. That, that there was a society thousands of years ago that, that codified this into law. Yet, every single gospel makes two claims about the resurrection, which would be the toughest thing for people to swallow about the gospels, that Jesus died and yet rose again. Every single gospel makes these two claims. Number one, that all the male followers of Jesus bailed on him. They all ran. When the going got real tough, they all deserted. The guys that deserted Jesus wrote down, we all deserted Jesus. But they noted the women did not. The women did not. The biographers of Jesus claim that we were out of there when it got tough. But the women stuck it out. The other thing that all four Gospels, you can look at every single one, read every single story, the other thing that they claim is that women were the witnesses of the resurrection in a society where women couldn't give testimony in a court of law, God, in his wisdom, made sure that women 
were the first witnesses to the resurrection. And it's not like it's an accident. In the Gospel of John, it's, it's kind of a hilarious story because Mary Magdalene goes to the grave. She sees that the grave is empty. She runs back and tells the apostles. Peter and John race to the tomb. They confirm that it's empty. They go back to say, yes, apostles, it's all empty. Mary Magdalene's just hanging out. And this is the story. I'm not making this up. And Jesus steps from behind some shrubbery and is like, hey, Mary. I wanted to make sure you were the first person I talked to. He avoided Peter and John so that he could speak to Mary. Why, why would the Gospels write that? Unless they were reflecting what really happened. The truth of the matter, the truth of the situation. John wasn't sitting there thinking, hmm, thousands of years in the future, this is going to make us look really progressive. What they were doing is they were writing what happened. Here's a short list, just a short list of the awkward things that they wrote. The apostles constantly make themselves look dense. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, that's not a, it's not a good look. It's not a good look. That doesn't become anybody's slogan. Peter's probably not walking around bragging with his buddies like, yeah, <laughs> Jesus called me Satan. It was great. They claimed the wrong kind of people followed Jesus, and I, we just don't get it, because now we're better about trying to not bring class into everything, although we fail, but then they weren't. And so when Jesus had followers who were reformed prostitutes and tax collectors, it wasn't a good look. These are not the type of people you want showing up on Sunday at a church if you want to get other people to come to church, but this is recorded because this is what happened. His birth was scandalous. His death was shameful. It was designed to be dishonorable. And you're, you're saying the religious leader of your movement was hung on a cross and killed? It's not a good look. His teaching wasn't acceptable or popular. He repeatedly made claims that got him killed. Now, again, is, is the bold claims that the authors made, is that enough? No, no, but it's a clue. Is the awkward claims that they made, is that enough? No, but it's a clue. These guys aren't trying to make something up because if they were going to make it up, they would make different stuff up. Finally, number three, number three, death. Josephus was one of those non-Christian historians, and he has this account, and, and I apologize, it's, it's, it's a little graphic, and I'll try not to be too graphic about it, but he has this account of James, the brother of Jesus, uh, being executed. And what he writes is, is that there was this moment when the governor of Judea, the Roman-appointed governor of Judea, had passed away. And Rome was like, well, we got to get another guy there. So they sent another guy. And he was on the road. But before he showed up, there was a little bit of a power vacuum. Nobody was there to enforce the rule of law. So the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they got together and they were like, we got to do something to stamp out this Christianity thing. Let's cut off the head of the snake and it'll kill it. And so they went to James who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem at this time. This is 62 AD. They go to James, and they drag him before the court, and they say, it's very similar to what happened to his brother. Uh, they say, hey, you have violated the law, and the law says we must execute you. Uh, what say ye? And he's like, well, I still believe. I, and think about this. James saying, I believe that my brother is the Messiah, and I believe that he died and rose again. My sisters can't come to terms on who got lost in Hong Kong, but can you imagine if your sibling was like, I'm the Messiah? You'd be like, no, he's not. Not, not unless you think it's absolutely true. 
And James said, I believe. And so they dragged him to the top of the temple and they threw him off. But it didn't kill him. It didn't kill him. Um, Clement of Alexandria writes later that he was still alive and one of the members of the Sanhedrin had a club and he beat him to death. At some point, if you were making it up, or if you weren't certain about what you believed, as you're being dragged to the top of the temple, and you know what's coming, at some point, do you think you would say, ah, I'm just kidding, guys. I'm joking. Even if you did maybe believe, you might be like, I'm just joking. But these guys faced death rather than deny this thing that they saw with their own eyes. And it wasn't just James, the brother of Jesus. It was all the apostles. And it was many of the second generation followers as well. They had all these chances to say, all right, it's not true. It's not true. It's not true. And they didn't. They would rather go to death. Now, I was thinking about this a lot this week. Um, In recent U.S. history, probably in the last 50 or 60 years, we've had several events where groups of religious people believed something so strongly that they followed their leader into death. Jonestown, over 900 people. Uh, Heaven's Gate in 1997. Um, What else? There's several. uh, David Koresh died rather than say, you know what, I'm actually not the Messiah. So is the fact that someone would die for a belief proof? No. But you know what? All those movements died with those people. They all died with those people. Nobody is naming their sons Koresh. Nobody is naming their son Jim Jones. I guess that's a common name, but they wouldn't after that guy at least, right? Nobody is saying maybe those Heaven Gate guys were on to something. Those movements died, and yet here we are thousands of years later, and I bet you probably maybe a third, maybe half the people in the room are named after followers of Jesus right here. That's the type of influence that has had. The death of the leader could not end this movement. Why? Well, maybe because it was real. Maybe because it was real. Now, there's so much more we could address. I mean, there are entire books uh, written on the radical ways the world is different because of Jesus. I mean, the idea of hospitals and orphanages and charities. I mean, what's the capital of our state? It's named after a Jesus follower. That's the kind of influence that Jesus has had on the world. But I want to show you a verse at the end of Matthew, because some of you are like, "Ah, all right, fine, this is fine, it's fine. I don't think you're wrong, Patrick, but I don't know, I'm, I'm still on the fence. Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. This is after Jesus was resurrected. This is speaking of the 11 that were left, and this is what they did looking at the resurrected Jesus. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Why in the world would the Bible record that little detail of people seeing the resurrected Christ with their own eyes, but some doubted? Here's why. Because our God has a heart for the skeptical. For people that want to believe or want things to be true, but just don't know, don't know how to get there. He has a heart for that. There's no comment about that. It just says some doubted. Some of those guys doubted. I love that Matthew included that detail because what we're claiming is hard to believe. It's hard. This is not easy to believe. You're saying a person 2,000 years ago was the son of God and he died and rose again? That's hard to believe. That's hard to accept. It's not, it's not unreasonable to have some questions, some good questions, and the Bible acknowledges that. Some doubted. 
How are we supposed to substantiate 2,000-year-old claims? Well, they clearly weren't trying to pull a fast one because they gave us way too many details. They, they didn't make themselves look good. They included way too many awkward things, and they, they faced death because of this. I mean, they were pretty certain that what they saw was true, and the question for us is, are we pretty certain that what they saw was true as well? They could be making it up, I suppose, right? They could be lying. They could be honestly mistaken, or they could be telling the truth. And here's the question for us. If they were telling the truth, then that has some pretty big implications for us. If they were telling the truth that Jesus died and rose again, that makes a difference for you. That he promises us that we can have eternal life. Well, if they're making it up, who cares? But if they're not, I mean, that makes a difference for how we think about this life and the time that we have. You know how many weeks that you have in your life to live from beginning to end? The average human has 4,000 weeks. And if Jesus was real and what he did was real and what he said was real and what he taught was real, well, then those 4,000 weeks might be spent a little differently than they would otherwise. Faith isn't a leap before you look proposition. It's not. He, the invitation is to the skeptical, to explore and to ask good questions. But at some point, we do have to leap. We do have to decide that our lives are going to look different and be different and value different things because of this being that existed thousands of years ago. At some point, we do have to leap. You can look around the room at people, and they're doing some pretty weird things that they would only do if they believed that Jesus was real, that he lived 2,000 years ago, that he died on a cross, but he rose again. They would only make those choices if that were true. So even if you can't accept it, maybe you can look at somebody else and say, well, help me understand why you believe. Why do you think that Jesus is real?